This is part two of a message I began last time, and the, the message title is Christ-like character must characterize Christians. Christ-like character must characterize Christians, part two. And this week, I came across a story about a guy named Mike. Mike was a leader among students. He had everything, a contagious personality, athletic ability, good looks, and natural appeal. Everybody wanted to be around Mike. But a few years after college, Mike suffered an injury. And as a result, he lost everything. His handsome appearance was gone. His voice was slurred. He couldn't teach anymore. Everything that others admired in Mike was now taken from him. His treatment required months of grueling therapy. But eventually, he was able to function again. The devastating effect on his body was paralleled by an equally powerful change in his spirit. He still attracted followers, but he was no longer focused on himself. He was focused on God. In college, when people were around Mike, they wanted to be like Mike. Now, after spending time with Mike, they wanted to be more like Jesus. And this tells us something. Sermons don't just take places. Sermons don't just take place in the pulpit in the church. Your life is a sermon. You're a walking sermon to a watching world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which Christ walked. To sum up that verse for you, followers of Christ follow Christ. Followers of Christ follow Christ. They walk in his footsteps. Once God saves you, you remain on earth, but your life shouldn't remain the same. Think of the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul. He was walking on the road to Damascus. Then the Lord appeared to him and saved him. He went from being a chief persecutor of Christ to a chief proclaimer of Christ. A total transformation took place in Paul's life. Everything about Paul changed when he was saved. 2 Corinthians 10, 17. <coughs> If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The work of God in the life of every believer ought to be undeniable. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. So a question is, are you striving to be the best version of yourself? Or are you striving to be more like Jesus Christ. What do people see when they look at you? Do they see the fruits of being in a relationship with Christ? Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. Our lives are to promote and point to Christ. They're to showcase and show forth Christ. Our lives are to reflect and reveal Christ to others. As those who are saved and united with Christ, Christ-like character must characterize us. And brothers and sisters, Christ doesn't just change our destination from hell to heaven. He doesn't just change our direction. Once we ran to sin, now we run from sin. He doesn't just change our desires, selfish, to now Christ-honoring. Christ changes everything about our life. Union with Christ, it doesn't just demand a right understanding of who Christ is and who we are because of him. 
Union with Christ also demands a right way of living that accords with Christ and his character. With Christ, you have everything you need to live the Christian life. You're complete in him. As night is the day, there should be a clear contrast of your life before Christ and your life after Christ. And last time, we learned that believers have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. In other words, the new self has replaced the old self. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We learn that believers are to put to death sin, to kill sin, because it's inconsistent with Christ. And we also learn that whatever sin that you're struggling with can be overcome because of our union with Jesus Christ. Our Christian lives are the living out of the victory that has already been won by Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Our Christian lives are the living out of the victory that has already been won by Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you, we're not working for victory. We're working from victory towards victory. Therefore, you have something to say about sin because Christ has conquered sin and now you have the power of the Holy Spirit to put sin to death. And this morning, we'll see that the road to growth and maturity isn't only marked by an increasing hatred for sin, but also an increasing desire for holy living. In other words, we can't just say no to sin, we must also say yes to God. Christianity isn't only to be defined by what we're to avoid and to kill, but also what we're to be and the way we're to behave. Think of clothing. If you just put off clothing without putting anything on, you'd have no clothes on, and that wouldn't be a good thing. We can't just throw off old clothes. We also need to replace them with new clothes. So what, what characteristics must define us? What attitudes and actions should we be adorned with? And can I say it this way? What does a well-dressed Christian where and the big idea of this sermon is receivers of christ reflect christ receivers of christ reflect christ in every sense of the word reflect and if you're taking notes you can reflect christ by remembering three things remember your identity and identification verse 12 remember your fallenness and forgiveness verse 13 and remember your unity and uniqueness Verse 14. So we'll take those one at a time, beginning with remember your identity and identification, verse 12. Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul reminds the Colossian saints, and he reminds us of who we are, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Our identity is in Christ, not in what others tell us or what we, what we believe about ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this is something that you need to know and you need to believe this and make sure that you're daily living out the reality of your identity in Christ. You must see yourself as God sees you in Christ. You must accept yourself for who God says you are. Nothing else and no one else defines or should shape your understanding of who you are. 
You're defined by your relationship with God in Christ and nothing else. And this identity that we're talking about, it's a God-given identity. Scripture is clear. You're not a Christian by your own choice. You're chosen by God. And another way to put that is, you're the elect of God. Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Salvation is solely of the Lord. It's his work and it's his initiative. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means that you are intimately known by God from eternity past. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Again, we see it. God chose you. Now, we can ask this question. Did God choose us because of something we did? Did God choose us because of our good works? Let me go back to Ephesians 1.4 and ask you this. It says, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, before we even existed. How could we have done anything good or merit anything towards our own salvation when we didn't even exist? Listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's choosing of us doesn't depend on anything that we've done. So then why would God ever choose me? Why would God ever choose you? Why would God ever choose sinners like us? The Bible is also clear on this. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to the passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. Why would God choose us? God doesn't choose us because of who we are or because of what we've done. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He chooses us because he's rich in mercy, because of his great love, because of his grace. There's a song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a, as a, not a result of work so that no one may boast. No one can boast because no one can save themselves. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. You are chosen by God. And because of God's choosing you, you're also holy and beloved, Paul says. Holy means to be set apart, to be consecrated to God, to be joined to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God has set us apart for a purpose, to glorify him, to be separate, to be distinct, to be different from the world. Again, if you think of, think of marriage, in marriage, one man and one woman 
are set apart exclusively for each other. In the same way, salvation sets the believer apart exclusively for Jesus Christ. We're to be set apart from sin, Satan, and self, and we're to be set apart unto the Savior for his service. Not only are we holy, but we're also beloved. And this word beloved, it means that we're the objects of God's love. God has set his heart upon us. We're dearly loved by God. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 says, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This is a tremendous truth because as we know, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our identity is in Christ and our identity is God-given. And that means as God sees his son, he also sees us the same way through his son. Paul, he takes these three terms, chosen, holy, and beloved, and he applies them to new covenant believers. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 2.9 where Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Previously, it, those terms were all used exclusively of God's covenant people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Example of this is Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is talking about the nation of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. What was once true of God's elect people, Israel, is now true of all, of, is now true of all or anyone who comes to God by faith in Jesus Christ. So what is Paul doing here in this verse? He's reminding us of our God-given identity our incomparable position, chosen by God, holy and beloved. Brothers and sisters, believing this ought to lead to transformation. You have to know your identity as a follower of Christ. This is who you are, and from your identity flows all your behavior and actions. From your identity flows all of your behavior and actions. In other words, you have to know your identity as a Christian before you can live as a Christian, you have to know that God takes all the initiative. You have to know the security of being loved with an everlasting love. You have to know the purpose of being set apart to God and for God. You have to understand your election was from before the foundation of the world, based on nothing that you did but by God's grace and love. Everything is rooted in what God has already done. So now that we understand our identity, we need to know what kind of identification markers would be consistent with our identity. What characteristics, qualities, virtues should identify us as believers in Christ? And Paul gives us five, five things that we're to put on. And these aren't optional. These aren't negotiable. These aren't put them on if you, when you feel like it. These are mandatory. 
This is a command given by Paul. And the picture is of putting on clothing. And to illustrate this, I was thinking of my, my own kids. I have three young kids, and they all love to play dress-up. Last year, all of last year and all the way up to, to even this week, Theo and Thompson, my two boys, they've been really into Spider-Man. And I would even say they're, they're more into Spider-Man than they're into Jesus Christ. They, they, have, they each have their own Spider-Man costume, and they wear them all the time. And when they have them on, it's a whole other world for them. They immediately transform into a web-shooting superhero when they put the, the costume on. In fact, Theo and Thompson, they think they're Spider-Man. They really think they're Spider-Man when they have it on. They're no longer the Theo and Thompson under the costume. They look like Spider-Man, they act like Spider-Man. So they put on the costume and they also put on the qualities of the character they dress up as. And in a much greater way, we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We've been clothed with power from on high, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit from Luke 24, 49. And we're to also put on the clothing that Paul mentions here. We must put them on, and they must completely cover us as clothing does to the body. And all five of these, these layers of clothing, they're all true of God, and they're all true of Christ, and they must be true of us as well. Romans 13, 14 sums up this, this verse well, where Paul tells us in Romans 13, 14, it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put on Christ, to put on these Christ-like characteristics. To remind you again, everything is rooted in what God has already done. We must never forget our identity. And why do I bring that up again right after we just talked about that? So that you would know that you don't put on these virtues to become elect or to become holy or to become beloved. You put them on because you are elect, holy, and beloved in Christ. The cause to put them on, to clothe and adorn yourself with these characteristics that are already true of you as a believer in Christ. So we'll take these one by one. First, compassionate hearts or a, or a heart of compassion. This is a core level, gut level tenderness, having a deep concern and sensitivity for the needs of another. You see a brother or sister in need and you're moved. You're moved internally. You have sympathy for them. This isn't just a, a feeling, but a deeply felt feeling that results in merciful action. Now, was anyone more compassionate than Jesus? In Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus went to the outcast. He helped the needy and poor. He healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, fed the hungry. He wept for people. He touched lepers. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors. Compassion was completely true of Jesus and must be completely true of us as well. The first layer of clothing to put on is a heart of compassion. Listen to 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? Second, kindness. Kindness is the opposite of being severe and harsh. It's a sweetness of disposition. And Jesus used this word in Matthew eleven thirty when he said, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy, meaning it's not harsh. It's not hard to bear. We can also think of kindness as, as compassion in action, sacrificing for the sake of another's well-being, readiness to do good even when it may be undeserved or at a great cost to, to yourself. A great example of this is the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. A man was traveling and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and, and then departed, leaving him half dead. A priest comes by, sees the man, passes by on the other side. Next, a Levite comes by, sees the man, likewise passes by on the other side. Then a Samaritan comes by. He sees the man and we're told that he had compassion. And not only compassion, but kindness, compassion in action. He acted on this compassion. He bandaged up the man's wound, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, and he spent a significant amount of time and money, all at a personal cost to himself. John Blanchard, he said, kindness is a language that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. And has God not been kind toward us, brothers and sisters? Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We've been saved because, God's, because of God's kindness toward us in Jesus Christ, in and through Jesus Christ. Second layer of clothing to put on is kindness. So third, humility. In the Greco-Roman world, humility wasn't viewed as a virtue. It was seen as, as weakness. It was seen as being a, a coward. And much like, much like that day, pride and domination rule today as well. But Christ, he, he flips that upside down. Humility means that you have a right view of yourself, a right estimation of yourself with reference to God. You value and assess yourself appropriately. The opposite of humility would be pride, selfishness, self-centeredness, comparing yourself with others. Humility, as we're taught in Scripture, is putting others first, esteeming others better than ourselves. It's not thinking less of yourself, as, as famously said. It's thinking of yourself less. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's being a servant. Humility is serving others without caring if it's noticed or not. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not, to be, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Humility is foregoing your own rights if needed. And was anyone humbler than Christ? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The third layer of clothing to put on, then, is humility. Humility must mark your life, as was evident in the life of Christ. Fourth, meekness or gentleness. This is self-control. This means that you're not self-assertive or critical with others. Meekness is not needing to have the last word. Having no desire for revenge or payback. You'd rather forgive than, than avenge. And even in times when you can avenge a wrong, you don't and you won't. You refuse to. In other words, it's a willingness to suffer injury rather than inflict it. And this is power under control, even when provoked. The word was used to describe a, a soothing wind, a healing medicine, and a colt that had been broken. In each instance, there's power. A wind can become a storm. Too much medicine can kill. A horse can break loose. A meek person is under control. A gentle person is under control, not out of control. So are we, are we gentle people? Are we gentle with everyone, not just to those who are easy to be gentle with? Do you approach everyone with a spirit of gentleness? How about when restoring a sinning brother or sister in Christ? Listen to Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How about when defending the faith against those who oppose you? 2 Timothy 2.24-25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And Jesus was gentle. He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. It was also Jesus who said, Bless, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The fourth layer of clothing to put on is gentleness. And fifth and finally, patience. Patience. Long-suffering. The opposite of a quick anger and resentment. It means to suffer long with people. It means that when it comes to your temper, you let your fuse get longer and longer before your temper ignites. It means to bear up without retaliating. Patience is described as your capacity to bear injustice or injury without revenge. Listen to Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that, the, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God didn't destroy us the moment we sinned. Rather, he was kind and patient so that we, it would lead to our repentance. 
And now that he has saved you, he calls you to be patient as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. The fifth layer of clothing to put on is patience. Taking all these together, receivers of Christ reflect Christ. You're to live a holy lifestyle consistent with your new identity. And remember who you are. You've been chosen by God. And you stand before him as his beloved holy ones. Remember your identity and remember the marks that identify you. The five layers of clothing, the five virtues, if you will, are to be your constant attitude. So Paul gives us a list of individual qualities, a list of personal qualities. So how is one to know if one is compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient? It needs to be expressed in order to know if they're true of you. And one way to know is in the context of relationships, which is where Paul moves to next. Second thing to remember is remember your fallenness and forgiveness. Verse 13. It says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 14 moves from attitudes to actions. Christ saves you as an individual, but he calls you into a body, the church. And the body of Christ is to display to the world that we are saved from our fallenness and forgiven of our sins. The church is to show the world that we've been saved from our fallenness and been forgiven of our sins. And this comes in the context of relationships. This is shown through how we interact and get along with other brothers and sisters in Christ. The very fact that people aren't perfect. We don't always get along with everyone. We sin against others and others sin against us. However, through our through our relational conflicts, we can still display and honor Christ by our actions and our attitudes. Bearing with one another means to put up with one another, restraining your natural reaction towards difficult people despite persecution, threats, injury, indifference, or complaints. Bearing with one another is tied to patience. It means to tolerate in the sense of of holding yourself back. And this requires an understanding of who you are, what you've been saved from, and who you've been saved by. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Ephesians 4, 2, Show tolerance for one another in love. God is forbearing towards sinners in that he holds back his judgment. Romans three twenty five. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Again, why do we bear with one another? There are people that are hard to get along with. There are difficult people. And when there's relational conflict, it doesn't mean that you, don't, you stop talking to them. It doesn't mean that you decide to, to get up and leave the church and find another one because maybe people there are nicer. Paul says, forbear. Bear 
with one another. This is a mark of a true church. This is a mark of a church that has sweet fellowship, that's united together because of Christ. In a church where, where people bear with one another, you'll find a strong church. And in a church where people don't bear with one another, you'll find a weak church. Not only are, is bearing with one another to be reflected in our church and in our relationships, another action that should be reflected is forgiveness. Believers forgive each other. And as, as a key, the, the key to this, the reason for this, Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. C.S. Lewis, he, he, he said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. And if bearing with one another is hard, forgiveness is even harder. But one of the ways you bear with one another is by forgiving them. And this, this root word for forgiveness is, is the word grace. Forgiveness is a grace gift, and it means to be gracious. And for this, we'll turn to the parable of the unforgiving ser- servant to illustrate this, this kind of forgiveness. Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35, the parable goes like this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. That's more than anyone can pay in multiple lifetimes. And it goes on. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that, of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master released and forgave the man of his unpayable debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii was a decent amount of money. It was a decent amount of money, but not even equivalent to one talent. Remember, the other servant owed 10,000 talents. It says, the, the parable goes on, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This parable is, is ridiculous. And it's supposed to be. It's the point of the parable. There's a severe disconnect with how the servant was treated and how he treated others. And the same is true for all of us. When we, when we refuse to forgive, there's a severe disconnect with how we've been treated and how we should treat others. It's ridiculous. It's inconsistent with Christ. How much has the Lord forgiven us? Much greater than 10,000 talents. He's forgiven us everything. 
every single sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 12. There's someone that said, you'll never forgive anyone as much as God in Christ has already forgiven you. This parable removes all excuses you may have for not forgiving another from your heart. Let me also say this. Why would you refuse to forgive another brother and sister? Why would you refuse to forgive another brother or sister in Christ who Christ has already forgiven? Forgiveness isn't an option. Brothers and sisters, it's not Christ-like or Christ-honoring to bear a grudge. Augustine, he said, if you're suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him, lest there be two bad men. You've been forgiven, so forgive others and keep on forgiving just as Christ forgave you. You must always be ready to forgive. You must stand ready to forgive. And remember, this is a grace gift. It's freely offered, undeserved. We're to be gracious. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If God were not willing to forgive, someone said, heaven would be empty. And someone also said this, we are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. And we are most like God when we forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Chosen by God, set apart for God, beloved by God, forgiven by God. Our fallenness, our depravity ought to cause us to be able to hold back when we realize that we aren't perfect ourselves. And the fact that we've been fully and completely forgiven for our sins ought to lead to forgiving others. So Paul not only calls us to personal and relational qualities, but he also calls us to an indispensable, an essential quality that encompasses all the other qualities. The third thing to remember is, remember your unity and uniqueness. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So when the personal qualities of verse 12 are reflected in the lives of believers, and when the relational qualities of verse 13 are reflected in the relationships between believers, it promotes unity and harmony in the body of Christ. And unity is something that Paul, he brought up in verse 11, which we didn't get a chance to cover last time, so we'll look at it now. And it'll be a good springboard, it's a good foundation for what Paul instructs us in verse 14. So verse 11, chapter 3, Colossians. Here, there's not Greek. So here, meaning in Christ. So in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So not to go into too much detail here, just know 
that, the, that fellowship between the categories of people that Paul mentions here was unthinkable. However, in Christ, we learn there are no barriers, no distinctions, no divisions, whether that be racial, Greek or Jew, religious, circumcised or uncircumcised, cultural, barbarian, Scythian, or social, slave or free. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 12 and 13. Distinctions don't matter because Christ is all. Our relationship with him is really all that matters. And this is how beautiful harmony and unity can exist in the church. We, we have a new identity and have adopted a new lifestyle because of Christ. We've received Christ, and so we're to reflect Christ. Only because of him can unity and, and harmony exist. Only because of Christ can unity and harmony exist. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ and united to one another. And this teaches us, teaches us something very important. It is not our job to create unity. We do not create unity. It's our job to recognize the unity that already exists in Jesus Christ and because of Jesus Christ, and we keep that unity. So how are people brought together? Christ and the power of the gospel. Christ and the power of the gospel. That's who changes lives and brings Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free together. Our unity must come from this understanding and be, a, be ordered according to the, the truth of God's word. We can have differences, but here the call is to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And you'd imagine fellowship between these, these categories of people that were unthinkable that they would get along. You imagine fellowship between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, free and slave, barbarian, Scythian. It wasn't all peaceful and lovely. Issues were bound to come up. Disputes were sure to arise. That's why believers are called to bear with one another and forgive one another. It's not only Christ-like to do so, but it also shows that we understand our union and unity with Christ. We're all one in Christ. Christ is central to everything, and it's he who saves us, and it's he who also brings us together. So again, our job isn't to establish unity. Our, our unity already exists in Jesus Christ. His love for us establishes our love for one, one another, and we need to protect that. So what, what, what can we work on as a church? Protecting the unity that already exists between brothers and sisters in Christ, because of Christ. We need to realize our identity in Christ. We need to know that what we have in Jesus Christ is we have more in common than whatever pulls us apart. A.W. Tozer has a book titled The Pursuit of God. And there's a portion in that book where he talks about unity. He says this, 
quote, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are, they are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for a closer fellowship, end quote. Christ is the tuning fork that keeps us together. The body of Christ are all in all, and he's in us. Brothers and sisters, the one thing that matters is the one person who binds us to himself and to each other. May we love one another because he first loved us. So coming back now to verse 14, and if you haven't figured out what this essential quality is, it's love. Unity only occurs where love is present. The supreme Christian grace is love. And there's one imperative, there's one command in verses 12 to 14. It's put on, which we, we saw in verse 12. However, the main object of that imperative is the word love, which we don't find until verse 14. So what does that tell us? It tells us compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. None of that is possible without love. Paul says it binds everything together in perfect harmony. To bond something together means the fastening together of separate items which were brought together into a unity. It's a medical term used for ligaments that hold parts of your body together. Paul says this, beyond all or above all else, more important than anything else, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. So some questions to ask, do you have a genuine in, intense love for your brothers and sisters here at Winona Gospel Church? Do you desire their greatest good? An absence of love or a lack of love for your fellow brothers and sisters isn't fitting for someone who professes love to God. The Apostle John said this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What, what the Apostle John says is, you can't have a heart that has been changed by God and also have a heart that hates another brother or sister in Christ. If you love God, you must love your fellow saints. Love is this belt that ties and holds all the layers of clothing together. Love is the binding power that unites the church together. It binds and brings every attribute together in perfect harmony. And there's no greater display of love than the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Brothers and sisters, when it's hard to love that difficult person, when you're tempted to justify why someone doesn't deserve your love, when your heart doesn't love and long for the greatest good of another, may you look to the cross. May you remember that God saved you while you were his enemy. May you remember that you did nothing to earn or deserve his love. May you remember you are chosen by God, holy and beloved. God's love is unique because it's perfect, unconditional, eternal. He can't love you more than he does because he couldn't love you more. That's what it means that his love is perfect, it's complete. It doesn't depend on anything you do or don't do. You're his sons and daughters. His love for you isn't based on performance or achievement. God's love will never fail. God's love will never falter. And you can't be separated from his love. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When we understand God's love, then we can love others with the love that God has loved us with. Let us walk in love, for we are one. Put on love then, brothers and sisters. Remember, in Christ there are no distinctions, no barriers, because we're one in him, and he is all and in all. And if Christ is supreme in our lives, and if Christ is supreme in the church, we will be able to love each other for his glory. And if you're here or listening in and not a believer, I pray God would convict you of your sin, righteousness, and judgment. But I have good news for you. His mercy is greater than all your sins. And you can know and experience the love and forgiveness of God this morning. You were made in the image of God, created for his glory, but because of sin, have separated yourself from a holy God. But through the sinless, sin-bearing, and death-defeating Savior, Jesus Christ, you find salvation and hope. And by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus, you can take hold of that salvation. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Will you repent and believe in Christ this morning and experience a love that you have never known, a love greater than any love you have ever seen or experienced, and know the forgiveness of God which you desperately need. Remember your identity and identification. Remember your fallenness and forgiveness. Remember your unity and uniqueness. A changed heart will result in a changed life. And I chose the word remember because I want you to understand that the command to put on compassion to hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, it's more than just marching orders from God. These characteristics aren't just commands for you to carry out, but rather they're characteristics of who you are in Jesus Christ. It's all tied to your identity in Christ. Don't forget that obedience doesn't lead to your acceptance with God. Rather, because you're accepted, you obey. You are God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved. Your attitudes and actions flow out of your identity in Christ. Be a well-dressed Christian by putting on Christ. And as we've learned, receivers of Christ reflect Christ. So as you live and walk the Christian life, you're to be an advertisement wherever you are, whoever you're with, whatever the circumstances. You're to be an advertisement not of yourself, but of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, you and I won't do this perfectly. But remember, Christ has done it perfectly. And he died on behalf of those who broke God's commands. And now through Christ, by his power, you and I can live it out. We can love. We can forgive. We can bear with one another. We can be patient, kind, gentle, humble, compassionate. And when we fail, and we will fail, our gracious Heavenly Father will not crush us because he has already crushed Christ in our place. Isaiah 53, he was crushed for our iniquities. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of of the Lord to crush him. We also need to remember the life and power. The life and power of the Christian life comes from your life in Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 4 and following, a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's only as you're connected to Christ that his life-giving and life-producing power can cause you to bear fruit. Christ has given you new life and everything to live out your new life. He's a treasure that cannot be taken away. He's a well that never runs dry. We need to live for him. Live for him. You are his and he is yours. He's with you. He's for you. He's in you. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as you behold more of Christ, you will become more like Christ. May you be so clothed with Christ that when people look at you, they see Jesus Christ. May the full forgiveness of Christ lead you to fully forgive others. May the lavish love of Christ result in your lavish love of others. As you've received Christ, so reflect him. Christ is all and in all. Let us pray. Father, we come before you as those who have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We come before you as those chosen by you, holy and beloved. We come before you as your sons and daughters, and we confess we don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve the titles and, or the privileges, but because you are merciful, gracious, and loving, because you've sent your son to die in our place and raised him up in victory, because of Christ, we come to you with all the blessings and privileges of being your sons and daughters. We are forgiven by you. We are loved by you. Father, help us to remember who we are and whose we are. Help us to live in light of of our identity in Christ. Help us to not fail to forgive. Help us to not fail to love others. Help us to be well-dressed Christians who reflect and reveal Christ for our good, for your glory, and for the good of others. We thank you and love you. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.